Hello and welcome to the In Publishing podcast, bringing you weekly insights into the newspaper and magazine publishing sector. I'm Kia Byrne and this week my guest is Katie French, editor of the Basingstoke Gazette and Andover Advertiser. Before we start, we would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Atex. Atex provides software solutions to newspapers, magazines and online publishers worldwide. Its products include Desk, a content management suite with flexible options for efficient digital and print publishing, and cross-advertising, a cloud-based solution providing end-to-end multi-channel advertising management. For more information, go to atex.com. Our guest today is Katie French, editor of the Basingstoke Gazette and Andover Advertiser, Katie is the Gazette's first female editor in its 140-year history, and she's been in her role for less than a year. But she's already overseen significant increases in web traffic, spearheaded NewsQuest's national Thank You NHS fundraising campaign, and crossed swords with both the Hampshire Police and the Liberal Democrats. Katie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You've been described as having a great nose for a story. What's the secret of unearthing good stories? And how can you tell when a story merits further digging? That's, firstly, that's a lovely compliment. Um, and I think, I guess, really, it all comes down to listening. I think all journalists have different strengths. They might be good at uh, looking at data. They might have a great contacts book. But the one thing that I see constantly in really good reporters is just having that listening skill and being able to listen out for stories. Um, it might be that you call a contact uh, for one thing. And then they um, give you some information on something else. It's just about being receptive um, to what people are saying and being able to listen out for things. Great advice. Now, sorry to come on to the inevitable straight away, but what has been your experience of editing a local newspaper during the current coronavirus pandemic? It's been completely unusual and something that I don't think any of us could have ever foreseen I thought I'd lived through you know a couple of really exciting general elections and Brexit Um, but this really has been uh, life-altering really Um, we got in there quite early on in terms of working from home Um, so from the beginning of March I decided that the team should work remotely for our health and safety reasons and um you know, at first I was slightly worried about the changes going from working in a buzzing, vibrant newsroom and to being a little bit disjointed. I wondered how that will play out, especially on deadline day. Um, but actually, it's we've actually found that it works quite well um, in terms of, you know, readjusting work-life balance for some of us because we've got extra hours in the morning. We're not commuting. So it's been um, an interesting adjustment. And I'm sure newsrooms up and down the country are, are having similar problems or similar success stories right now. And has it affected your distribution? Because obviously it's harder for people to pick up a paper when they're out and about. Yes, it has, sadly. Um, I'll be completely honest about it. It has completely um, affected newspaper sales. We've seen a fall in advertising revenue. So I think it will recoup. I'm naturally quite an optimistic person. And I think that um, once we return a little bit more to normality, more people will be going out to shops again and they'll naturally be picking up their papers on their travels Um, but there yeah there's no secret about it it has definitely hit our industry pretty hard. Well I'm going to come on later to um, the partial paywall that NewsQuest has introduced but um, still sticking with the pandemic 
How have you been covering the pandemic in terms of the stories that you've been running? So we've been covering it in quite a broad strokes way, really. We've uh, been looking at the local hospital and the healthcare provisions, um, care homes, also looking at the community and the community's response. Um, I think people maybe have reached a point where there is a certain amount of uh, fatigue around some aspects of the story now. Um, so it's all about, you know, keeping it, making sure that it's informative um, and also stuff that people want to read and engage with. Um, quite early on, we got the story about a lack of PPE um, at the hospital here in Basingstoke. And it, that almost kickstarted a slightly a bit of a conversation about the, the lack of provisions. So we're, we're doing everything really from health stories as well as the, the day to day journalism, like court and crime and that kind of thing. And can you tell us a bit more about the Thank You NHS fundraising campaign, which I believe you've coordinated on behalf of NewsQuest titles nationally? Yes. Yeah. So early on, I recognised that this was an opportunity to um, do some good as well. I think there was a real public need to see some positive action as a result of this horrific and you know ongoing story that we're all living through. Um, and I came up with the idea of raising money to, to give to NHS charities together. Um, and I've been leading the national group effort um, and some papers are we've got 168 titles around the UK I should say and a very broad range of titles from the Northern Echo to the Oxford Mail um, and the idea behind this campaign was if people didn't want to raise for the NHS charities there might be a local cause instead that they could get behind um, and in total we've raised around £267,000 at last counting for various different causes um, and I think it's just a really good, it's nice to do something nice as well as reporting, you know, such a challenging story. So that that sounds like a really great scheme. Um, I want to wind the clock back a bit now and um, talk about how you first got involved in journalism. I believe that you edited the student newspaper at Plymouth and that while you were there, you made waves by exposing university disability cuts. What did you learn from that experience and what would your advice be for today's student journalists? I think I would always say if there is a student newspaper where you are, you're really lucky, first of all, because many of them have closed over the years. So do get involved in student press. Um, it's such a an amazing training ground. I had completely free reign um, as the editor in my final year. Um, I had no formal journalism training, so it's quite terrifying when I look back and think, you know, we really were coming up against some quite powerful forces in terms of the university's communications team um, and also the student union. But it's such a good training ground, you know, every day you're doing something different. Um, it, we took it very seriously. Those are my final year, almost like a full time job. Um, and I probably spent more time on my student newspaper than I did doing my dissertation. Um, but yeah, it's a great experience and it's, it's definitely one that you can't um, do anywhere else. So I definitely say make the most of it. And then you started out in local newspapers and then went to work for uh, a couple of national newspapers before returning to uh, the local newspaper sector in your current role. What differences have you found between the two and does your heart lie in local journalism? I yeah so I obviously started off in local news and I always knew at some point I wanted to go to London and work for the Nationals um, 
And I'm really glad that I did. I learned so much at Mail Online and um, from my stint at the Telegraph as well. It's just it's a different um, kettle of fish at a national level. And it really does, you know, give you an idea of um, how to lead a conversation and how to tap into what your readers are interested in. Um, when this opportunity came up in local press, I thought it would be a great uh, shout. Essentially, I wanted to go back into local news. I knew I wanted to go in at an editor's level, um, just really because I know that local news can give you so many opportunities in a way that you'd have to work for another decade in nationals um, to get to the same point. Um, I do I love local news. I think it has a really um, important place in society. And I'm very happy in local news. I see myself staying here for a long time, hopefully. Great. Um, now, in the last year, um, the Basingstoke Gazette website has seen a huge increase in web traffic. Um, in April, I believe you reported 1.7 million page views, which was up from 430,000 the previous year. And when you took the helm last July, you decided to shift to a digital first newsroom um, why did you feel that was the right thing to do? I, when I took over the job, I had a look at the, the existing output and I think I made, came up with a bit of a strategy for how I wanted the paper to move into the next kind of stage. And it was very much a paper-based operation. Um, and it was very good at doing that, but it, it maybe neglected the online um, audience somewhat. Um, and I essentially identified an opportunity to um, improve it really and just to build upon the existing audience there. Uh, I think it's really important that as we move towards different methods of getting news or different ways of getting news that um, publishers do embrace online and don't see it as a, a negative or a different entity because ultimately our readers are all online essentially most of them we get 30,000 readers a day now um, and our paper is around sort of 6,000 people a week. So we do have to, you know, go where the audience is and also build upon that. Because if we are unsure about the future of the print market, you know, it, it makes sense to focus online. And what does a digital first newsroom mean in practice? What what changes did you have to make? So the main shift really was getting reporters to think about stories and journalism first and not think about the paper structure so previously um, we're a weekly paper previously there'll be a flurry of activity on a deadline day and then things would tail off and then slowly pick up again at the start of the week whereas the whole uh, point about a digital first newsroom is that you're immersed in the news and you're reporting every day so although I call it digital first it's actually journalism first in many ways because you're focusing on reporting and your the paper then almost fills itself off the back of it. So it was almost sort of freeing reporters from the worries about filling a paper and letting them go off and explore and go out and you know find stories and get under the skin of local pressing issues. And were there any challenges that you faced in doing that? And would you have any advice for other newspaper editors, uh, local newspaper editors, um, thinking of doing the same? I think it's always a challenge when you try and change a, um, a working a way of working and you know you have to get buy-in from the reporters and they have to really love the job. Um, I think my advice would be just to be transparent and honest with what you're trying to achieve um, but actually you know one reporter said to me that he was considering uh, leaving to go and join a daily but then I turned up and he said that 
it suddenly felt a lot more like a, a daily newsroom and it was exciting. And I think if you can kind of build that excitement and that buzz, um, it can be quite infectious and contagious. So I just say be really positive about what you're doing and, and show people why you're doing it. That That's quite a compliment, isn't it? Um now, I touched on before that a number of NewsQuest newspapers, um, including, I believe, your own, recently introduced digital um, paywall after a certain number of articles. Can you tell me a bit more about the thinking behind that? Mm. So, as you know, we've been hit very hard by the coronavirus pandemic um, in terms of, ad, as we've just discussed, in terms of ad sales and uh, newspaper sales on the newsstands. And the the digital subscription service is really a way of sustaining our business for the future. And it's a very reasonable um, paywall or digital subscription service. It's um, 40 articles for free a month uh, when you register. And then if you are reading us more than 40 times a month, you asked if you could contribute. I think it's £4.99 a month or £52 a year. And the reason behind this is really as we move towards the future and you know we do see continued print decline we need to find a way of monetizing ourselves online and making ourselves profitable um so that's kind of the thought behind it really and what sort of a response have you had so far so it's actually been surprisingly positive of course we've had a couple of people who are confused which i completely understand because for years they've got this product for free and now they're being asked to contribute and that message can be confusing to convey about why you need local journalism and why we need the public support. But I have found that at each stage, when I engage with people who do have a negative perception, I have been able to win people round. And I think it's just about being transparent with people and saying, look, we really need you right now. Um, If you like your local press and you like what we do, we really need your support, whether that's picking up a paper or taking out a digital subscription. And... Do you see a time when most of your news might be behind a paywall? Do you think that you might take it further and bring it in sooner than the 40 articles? Or do you think that's a a model that's working? I think this model is working. I think it's the best of both worlds because your people can get their content for free and all of our coronavirus coverage will always be behind the pay in front of the paywall, sorry, um, because we believe that it should be. Um, And I don't envisage it changing anytime soon. I don't think there's much to gain from changing it. Um, I think you have to introduce these things slowly and measured in a measured way. And at each stage, be very transparent and honest with the readers about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Now, uh, on a different note, you recently crossed swords with um, the Hampshire Constabulary. You accused their press office of putting obstacles in your way and even of trying to beat you to your own stories. What was the issue there? Um, it sounds really bad when you put it like that. Um, the issue is, I guess it's not so much an issue. I think all local newspapers will come up against um, conflict sometimes with their local authorities that they cover. And we're no exception to that. Um, I've got great sympathy with the press office at Hampshire Constabulary. I know that they're a small team and they cover a vast area. I think my issue is when um, I just find it quite sad in a way that um, detectives and sergeants and police officers are discouraged from talking to the press and building up organic relationships and everything does have to go through the press office. And we did have a couple of occasions where we might put in a a media request and instead of getting a response, we would see a post go up on Facebook. And it's, it's um, sometimes that's slightly disappointing. Obviously as an editor, when we we're after a story and we get essentially scooped 
by the authority we're trying to cover. Did did they listen to your complaints? Um, we did have a, a bit of a discussion about it, but I think, you know, it's just business as usual, really. They're pretty thick skinned, I think, and they accept that sometimes there'll be things that we're not happy with, just as it is the other way around. And how would you like to see that relationship change if, if it could be improved on? I think I would like to see more of an open line of communication with things that are going on. And I, I know I just mentioned this, but I would like to see officers um, and members of the police force actually allowed to have relationships with journalists again, because they're actively discouraged not to talk to the press. And I can completely understand from a communications point of view why you might think that's a good idea, because you're controlling the message. But in reality, you're just stifling um, you're stifling news, really. And at the same time, officers are being encouraged to tweet about what they're up to. And I think if they can tweet, surely they can talk to a local reporter. But maybe I'm a bit old school. Yeah, I was saying not not like the old days. Um, now, a- another group um, with whom you um, had a bit of a, well, not a confrontation, but you criticised them, <laughs> was the, the Liberal Democrats in your area. Um, because during the last general election, they um, brought out some campaign literature which seemed to be disguised as a local newspaper. I know they did this in several areas, actually. Can you explain what happened in your area? Yeah, so um, I I was made aware of the fact that there was a um, a free newspaper, the, the Mid-Hampshire Gazette, being circulated um, in our circulation area. And to look at it, it had a, a front page headline, it had a picture, a story, um, and it had this big masthead which said the Mid-Hampshire Gazette. And in very small print, it said printed by the Liberal Democrats. And I took umbrage to this because it was in our circulation area. It was trading off the the trusted format of a local newspaper. And it was really disappointing to see um, a party that had been so vocal on fake news, essentially peddling something um, of that nature during the campaign. Um, So I wrote a little something about it and it got quite a lot of pick up. um, The Society of Editors and the NMA came out condemning um, the practice and it was since found out that all of all of the main political parties were doing similar things um but yeah so it was it was quite an interesting time and interestingly there were a couple of politico or sort of reporters or lobby correspondents that sort of said oh this has always happened but my argument is just because something's always happened doesn't give it you know carte blanche to continue into the future you know it's clearly not a, a good practice to be doing especially in a heightened era or fake news and you know that kind of thing. Well I was going to come on to say what what impact do you think that that sort of campaign tactic has on the regional press when perhaps public confidence in journalism is not as high as it should be anyway? Yeah exactly I think it it doesn't do a good service to the public it makes us all look bad frankly and it it reflects really badly on the um, the political parties as well but I don't think they'll be repeating it again for the next general election. Um, but we'll have to see. So looking into the future, um, obviously we're in really strange times at the moment, but what what are your plans for your titles? Moving towards the future, I think we've obviously just rolled out our digital subscription service. So we'll be building on that and trying to um, you know, reach out to as many people as possible to get people on board. Um, I'm hoping to continue the success online that the Gazette's had. We've also got a couple of campaigns running. We've got a campaign trying to stop a housing development being built on a historic piece of um, land. And we've got another campaign trying to stop libraries from being closed. So we've got our hands full at the moment. 
So I think we're just going to be working on those issues and keeping an eye on other things that crop up. And, and what are the challenges that you feel you're facing, particularly in the current climate? Hmm, I think the main challenge will be trying to get the public to get behind us in terms of taking out digital subscriptions or returning to buying us uh, when this is. I don't think this is definitively going to have a moment where it's over. But when we do start to see a, a return to normality, I think we do need to be quite vocal in, you know, making sure that the public know that we're we're still on the newsstands and we still need to be bought. And and do you feel that in a way um, the coronavirus pandemic has helped to restore some public trust? I think it has. I, I really do. I think um, polling of trust in journalists, especially local journalists, um, looked like it had improved recently, which is always nice to see. Um, we've definitely had a lot of positive feedback from people, which is really lovely because as you may or may not know, social media can be something of a cesspit sometimes for opinion and you know negativity. So when someone reaches out to say, thank you for this, you know, you've really done a good job here and we really appreciate the coverage, it does mean a lot. Um, so I think that in some ways it has restored the public's faith. We've also seen throughout the pandemic, there is really a, a strong demand for local news and that has been reflected in the, the web figures and the traffic, which was up um, sort of quite stratospheric um, figures in March so I think that does show that people do turn to people like us in times of need. And can I just ask about the wider newspaper local newspaper sector as well how do you think the regional press will evolve over the next five years? I think the regional press over the next five years it's going to continue to adapt to online I think um, and I think we'll be seeing more newsrooms adopting digital first strategies. And I think five years, you know, I think people have before written off the printed copy a bit too early. And I think hopefully we'll see something of a renaissance period for local papers. And will coronavirus change the sector irrevocably? Do you think that, that it's going to change the way that we report, the way that we, the relationship, as we've already touched on? It will, for sure. I think it will change how newsrooms operate. I think we'll probably see fewer um, publications return to their offices for quite some time, just because remote working does work. And I think it might see shifts in terms of people going in less and maybe having a bit more of a working from home split of the office. Um, I think in terms of stories, I think health is definitely going to be top of the agenda certainly for the next couple of years. And I, I can't see that changing. And in terms of your own team, you did say that that's actually worked better than you thought working remotely. Mm. But are you missing that newsroom buzz? I, yeah, I think there are definitely some days um, when it would just be lovely just to be in the in the office together so you can thrash out, you know, stories and angles together rather than doing it over Zoom or WhatsApp. Um, yeah, I do miss it. I think you can't replace that buzz of working together and having, you know, the television on and watching things that come in. Um, but I think we are all making do at the moment. I haven't gone stir crazy yet, which is a good thing. That's great news. And finally, you seem to be very passionate about investigative journalism that's shown throughout your career. Outside of your own organisation, which investigative journalists do you most admire? I think we're really lucky in the UK because we have such a a strong investigative um, 
you know, have so many strong investigative journalists from across the, the board. I think I really admire Heidi Blake at BuzzFeed, who's done some amazing stuff on um, Russia and Russian intelligence. Um, Claire Newell at The Telegraph, who broke the um, the Philip Green Me Too scandal. I think, yeah, there's a lot of people to look up to in this country. And are there any big stories that have been broken in recent years that you wish you had been responsible for? Um, I've just finished reading Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, which is all about how he broke the Harvey Weinstein story. Um, and, you know, that was such a major moment in terms of, um, you know, our culture here in the UK and also in the US. And I think being a part of a story like that would just be, you know, it's something very career defining that I think we could all aspire to do. Well, hopefully some story like that will come uh, into your patch someday soon. Who knows? Thank you, very, thank you very much, Katie, for joining us today and giving us some really interesting insights into the local newspaper sector. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to thank ATEX again for sponsoring this podcast. If you would like to discuss how ATEX can help you with either your content or advertising management, then check out their website at atex.com or contact Alberto Mari, their Head of Business Development, on 07500 433 157 or by email at amari at atex.com. Thank you very much to Katie for being our guest this week. Her newspapers can be found at basingstokegazette.co.uk and andoveradvertiser.co.uk. You can also follow Katie on Twitter at JournoKatie. You can find out more about In Publishing and register to receive our magazine and newsletter at inpublishing.co.uk. Thank you for listening and please join me next week on the In Publishing podcast. <laughs>